Greetings and welcome to your Afrofuturist podcast. My name is Ahmed Best. I'm your host. Thank you for being with us. Tim Fielder is an award-winning illustrator, concept designer, cartoonist, animator, and uh, his lifelong love of Afrofuturism and comic books and pulp entertainment and action films led him to create a studio called Diesel Funk. Now, Diesel Funk Studios is a multimedia company that specializes in stories and apps and anything in a visual format that puts forth the Afrofuturist idea as well as putting black people into situations in which you don't see very much representation when it comes to science fiction and fantasy. In this episode, we really talk about what is in Tim Fielder's head, what motivates him to doing what he's doing, why he does what he does, what influences him. And it was a great conversation because a lot of times when we talk to Afrofuturist designers and uh, tech technologists, historians, it's very difficult to get all of those wrapped into one person who has decided to take the mantle of creator and make something that visually represents as well as narratively represents where we want to go and where we want to be. His um, wonderful work can be seen at dieselfunk.com. We talk about his influences. We talk about why he makes what he makes and what he makes what he makes and why um, Diesel Funk will be a leader in the future of Afrofuturist narrative and storytelling. So please enjoy this episode with Tim Fielder, founder of Diesel Funk. Tim Fielder, I'm uh, an enormous fan of your work and I'm also, I'm just an enormous fan of your outlook. You know what I'm saying? Like, I love how you just come about just doing things. And the first thing I wanted to ask you about was the name Diesel Funk. Because it sounds like, like you know, like Bootsy Collins plays bass in Diesel Funk. Like, where did Diesel Funk come from? And why Diesel and Funk? Right, right. In my, I am not the first person to use Diesel Funk uh, uh, because Diesel Funk, just like Steam Funk, are subsets of um, steampunk, diesel punk, uh, where you are taking uh, alternative technology and modes of adventure and storytelling and being, and you're fusing it with Victorian age uh, 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 modalities. Now you're like, what's Victorian? That means the Queen of England, remember back in the 1900s when everything used to run on steam engines? Like that. Uh, but when you're talking about steam funk, you're talking about that type of thing, but they have brothers and sisters like us in it, right? So diesel funk would be a subset of that, right? Of diesel punk. And so that, that's what I'm doing. So I'm by no means the first practitioner of uh, diesel funk, but uh, it's a hot name. Uh, I named my company after it, very proud to have chosen that name. And uh, Maddie's Rocket fits into it. And uh, uh, it's been going on now for about four or five years. And when, when you started doing your own thing at Diesel Funk um, and Maddie's Rocket, I'm, I'm just such a huge fan of, especially since, you know, I'm a big aviator fan and, and you know. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I um, did not know that. Yeah, I, I love aviation. And, you know, my father was a, was really big into the Tuskegee Airmen and he was in the Air Force and, 
you know, the, the, the P 51 Mustang and the red tails was a big thing growing up. So, um, when Maddie's rocket, I, I looked at the illustration of Maddie's rocket. I felt like, Oh, this is a story that has a lot of historical gravitas. So where did that idea come from for Maddie's? Rocket? Uh, right. Maddie's rocket came from Bessie Coleman, who was the first black internationally licensed pilot, if I'm not mistaken, to fly plane. She's from Texas. Uh, and she did hair, made hair, and she could not get her license here in the United States. So she did hair, she did side jobs to earn the money to go overseas to France to get her license there because they were more open to people of color like us. So what I did was I took Bessie Coleman, mm -hmm. I took Harriet Tubman, I took Flash Gordon, I took Buck Rogers, and I took my mother and my grandmother and I mixed them up into a stew. And that's how you come up with Maddie's Rock. Now, most people wouldn't think of a, a, a comic book with a matriarch as the hero. Mm -hmm. Why did you choose a matriarch? Uh, because it hasn't been done. It has been done. I mean, you got Wonder Woman. You got Wonder Woman. You have Butterfly, which is a, a, a public domain character, which is really fascinating. You have uh, uh, certain types of characters, uh, female characters that have been comics for years, but the thing you didn't have generally were characters that were not sexualized. And I'll explain to you what I mean. I got my clothes on. Cameron has his clothes on, but you notice all the female characters have on bikinis. It's kind of weird, right? I didn't want to do that. I wanted a character where the, the, the woman was like my grandmother, my my godmother who was dressed to the nine all the time. So that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to have a character that would be adventurous like Bessie Coleman, but put it in a science fiction environment because my parents who are, you know, in their, well, my mom's 17 years old, but my dad is 85, right? You know, they're both older and they didn't have that growing up. But I said, let me do that. Let me do and was the spirit of your 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 mother and your grandmother being these women who, you know, I, I heard you talk about um, your family being very entrepreneurial, right? And um, did that did that influence you in helping create this character as well? Well, yes, of course it, it did because um, when I draw, uh, I. I'm trying to sit out and figure out the best way to. Yeah, uh, my dad uh, uh, and well, my granddad was a brick mason. Mm -hmm. He built the house that he raised my mother in. Uh, Great grandfather was a brick mason. So these guys were entrepreneurs when it wasn't safe to be an entrepreneur. And they did it in Mississippi, uh, which was very unsafe. My grandmother uh, was a cafeteria. Uh, head. She ran a cafeteria and she also was a consummate seamstress. And so we had artisans all around us all the time and they had a business and that's what I saw that they did. So I would do it too. And I would also have the character in the book uh, actually be an entrepreneur. And that's part of what I did. And, uh, and I think it worked out okay.
Yeah, it worked out fantastic. And um, seeing your work, you can tell that in in every frame that you draw, that you have this very um, strong foundation in doing it yourself and and and, you know, really laying the foundation of what you want to see. And one of my biggest um, curiosities about that as well is why did you choose comics rather than you know, commercial design, graphic design, website design, like any other thing, you know, why, why comic books? What was the allure? What was the attraction? That, that is a very good question. I mean, and to answer that question, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send Cameron over there to grab that white bag on the table over there. And I will demonstrate exactly why comics. Yes, absolutely. All right. So I'll begin the question here. Um, Comics, because I'm from Mississippi, I have older siblings and they decided what we were gonna do for extracurricular activity. As the younger sibling, I had absolutely no control over this. Right. So I was forced to become a comic book artist. And I decided that I wanted to tell stories like Jack Kirby. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, Stan Lee is great, but of course, in my household it was always Jack Kirby. Right. Again, when things became more advanced, it became Mobius. And then when uh, it became more advanced beyond that, it became Ralph Macquarie, which of course you're familiar with. Absolutely. Uh, and I wanted to do fully rendered stories featuring people of color in an in speculative situation. And this would go on from the mid eighties till the late nineties when the industry crashed. Yeah. And I went into game design. Uh, I learned 3D animation, which you need to learn too, Cameron. If you're going to do this, baby, you got to learn that digital. Uh, so I'm a, a, a digital artist. And as a result of that, I became hybrid in my skill set. And I wanted to bring that to, to what I did. Now, I was out of comics for about 12 years. Uh, and so to more succinctly answer your question, uh, animation... I love, but it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. I met up with some friends who saw my work which in the Black Metropolis show here at the Hammonds House, uh, where I'm doing my show called Black Metropolis. And um, they said, first thing, this work needs to be seen. And secondly, it needs to be published. So I went uh, through a period for about one weekend and decided I would do a comic which I was doing as an animation, Maddie's Rocket, then I moved that over to animation, and then this is what happened. So the first book was this thing. It was a floppy. That's called a floppy. See how thin it is? The floppy. So I did issue one, and then I did issue two, right? And it was so cool that I had, a, I, I gave a copy of, of this to Michelle Nichols, <laughs> uh, Lieutenant Yehura. She yeah. signed it for me. She kissed me on the cheek when I did it. Caught me totally off guard, but that's not here there. And then once I finished the story, it became this. So all of those books are now a fully featured graphic novel. So that's well what done. I did. And was was there a book when you were coming up, either as a kid or as a, a young adult in the nineties, was there a book that you you read or you saw, comic or otherwise, that that really spoke to you that said this is it this i want to do this don't i i, I hope you're not uh, i don't want you to take this the wrong way 
but uh, it was the art of Star Wars. I'm not trying to pander to you. I, I, and I'll explain to you why I say that. I'm the idiot who, you know, back in, like when you say in the 90s, in the 90s, I was in my 30s. I'm, I'm 52 now, so I'm old. Mm -hmm. But uh, in these late 70s and the 80s, I would get these art books, these concept design books. So when I saw Mobius and, and Sid Mead, all those concept designers who worked on Blade Runner, movies like that, I wanted to take that style and put it into my comics. So the book that really had a tremendous effect on me was The Art of Star Wars. Hmm. Uh, to see the work by John Molo, uh, uh, Ralph McQuarrie, uh, uh, Joe Johnson. Remember, you ever seen Captain America, First Avenger? Oh, yeah. That guy helped design Star Wars. Most people don't know that. And that's what it did. It, it completely changed and altered my life. And uh, I don't think another significant change would come along again till I went completely from analog artwork to digital. So now I'm totally digital. Right. And you don't do paper anymore. I, I save the trees. No, save the trees. Made out of trees. You know that, right, man? <laughs> yeah, it's made out of trees. You got to save the trees, man. Yeah, definitely. Anyway. Go green. But, you know, yeah. and, it, and it's the wonderful thing about that is, you know, Star Wars influences us all in a myriad of ways because it is this amalgamation of all the arts. Yeah, it is mm -hmm. architecture. It is zoology. It is speculative fiction. It is fantasy, right. as well as there are some mm -hmm. science elements. And it definitely influenced me as far as wanting to be a performer. I always wanted to be mm -hmm. in it. And, you know, you talk about how um, Lando Calrissian was uh, a strong influence on you. Right. And um, when did you realize that for your art, you needed to do a African diasporic focused idea of futurism? Right. Well, first of all, let me just say that I am not the first person to do this type of work. Right. Uh, uh, you know, and I, and I like to say that because there have been a number of visual Afrofuturists around for years. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just that you have some, like, for example, many visual Afrofuturists were doing work for musicians. So when you saw the covers to Earth, Wind, and Fire, yeah. that's visual Afrofuturism. Now, the cat who did that, I can't pronounce his name, this Japanese cat, who's amazing. Uh, Pedro Bell, Overton Lloyd, who did the cover art for Parliament Funkadelic. Now, that work was comics. Now, you're a little bit young. You probably don't know what a ton of dog is. Don't worry, I'll school you what that is. Right. Show. But <laughs> that's what I wanted to do. And when I took that idea of that funk, of that, that soul, and fused it with the more rendered tech of a Sid Mead and the Ralph McQuarrie, then I came up with my style. Right. The event that made me decide to do that, and I, I uh, said this once or twice before, uh, my oldest sibling uh, went to a Howard University uh, film school, and he was uh, tutored under this gentleman by the name of Haile Garima, who is a respected uh, a filmmaker, brother, L.A. Rebellion, uh, and he taught and made his film students uh, uh, understand that when they do their work, it should be mired in the black aesthetic, how we look. 
you know, our lips, our faces, our skin tones, our history. And so my brother went off to Howard. So you, if you, can, you can't get no more radical than that as a filmmaker. So he comes back, Clarksdale, Mississippi, and I'm doing a character. Uh, and the character is a swordsman dressed up in the middle of middle, uh, like military gear. He has these two swords. Now, for me, I was trying to do something that was based on like a Jedi warrior. Right. That literally is what I was trying to do. You know, when you're across the street from a cotton field, you have a lot of time on your hands, so you can do that type of stuff. But, so I did this work, and my brother saw it, and he lit into me. He said, what are you doing? Because I had called the character the master. Mm. It was a white guy. Now, I designed that character. I was thinking Jedi master or sword master, right? Right. But for him, he was like, you have a white guy who has these swords, and what are you saying? So this is my old brother, and I idolized him. And you, you know, you put your older siblings on 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 the pedestal and everything. So instead of being rebellious and saying, "No, I'm not going to do that," I literally went in the opposite direction. And everything became black. Right. And so I decided I would do characters like that. Uh, I was a little crazy, and I tried to do it in the mainstream industry, <laughs> which is not advisable, particularly for the late '80s, the Reagan era, and the Bush era and all that, but it's 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 so fascinating the time we're in now. Black Panther, thank God, thank God right. for Black Panther. And let's talk a little bit about that because you were at Marvel for a minute. Mm-hmm. What was that experience like? Because oh. you know, because you grew up reading Marvel comics, you said yeah. DC was more your your raison d'être, but you said Marvel comics was a thing for you. Right, and now you're well, working there. Yeah. What was that like? Like, how was that experience? And well, well, when you brought when you brought your point of view, how did the reception of your point of view um, change you? Yeah, you know that's that's a good question, and it's the first time anyone has ever asked me that question. So thank you for that. Um, I am. A visual Afrofuturist, and I want to do characters with Black folks in them. But in my core, I I would be lying to you if I denied that I would not love to draw Superman or the Hulk. I would be lying. Any comic book artist out there would essentially be not honest with you. They would be disingenuous if they did not concede that they would jump at the chance to do a traditional comic book. And when I worked for Marvel, I was, I came in, uh, first thing I did was Conan the Barbarian. You heard of Conan the Barbarian? Don't worry, we're gonna get him up to speed. So Conan the Barbarian is a character created by Robert E. Howard. Uh, and I'm mentioning that now and you say, well, what does that have to do with Marvel? Because it's influencing what I'm doing now. But uh, back to the Marvel uh, thing, I, I wanted to do, I wanted to work for a traditional comic book company. I wanted to work for Marvel DC. And I did editorial cartooning to begin with. And I got my start in comic books by Joyce Bradner, the widow of Harvey Picard, who I love very much. She gave me my start in comic books. And when I eventually started to work for Marvel Comics, uh, man, you're inside. I was a freelancer, of course. But you're inside and everyone is, is, I should say everyone is, is 
you know, like for example, I'm one of the painted artists. So I did painted graphic novels. And the painted graphic novels I did, they would hand you brushes. You know, I would use these brushes to paint back on in paper. And I, here I was producing that for Marvel Comics, man. That was, that's the dream. So I did that until, of course, the industry, most people don't realize that Marvel Comics declared bankruptcy in the world. And when they declared bankruptcy, uh, the dream for a lot of people basically ended. It basically ended. So uh, I did that. And for that brief period of time, I guess about four or five years, I freelanced. Uh, and then they eventually segued into video games. Where for, for about a year and a half, I worked on a Batman video game. Hated it, but I did it. So it was a interesting experience i can't seem to get away from comics man it just seems to be part of what i do and did you ever try to pitch any ideas when you were inside and um were those ideas afrofuturist centered um books and ideas yep not just the marvel i tried it the dc the first iteration of maddie's rocket was called if god was a woman and it was pitched to vertigo mm-hmm. uh and uh, that didn't work because the editor who liked it had a brain aneurysm and died, unfortunately. Oh, uh, the, yeah, I know that's kind of that's morbid, but that's we. The, it was that period in the '90s when the industry crashed took out a lot of guys. Mm -hmm. A lot of lost a lot of people because you know the mortgages were on the line, that type of thing. But I tried to pitch my stuff to various outlets. Uh, and the only one I was really successful with was Rap Pages magazine. Yeah. For a quick second, I did an iteration of Black Metropolis, which lasted for about three issues, but uh, it just wasn't time, man. You know, I remember speaking to a, a curator, a fairly famous curator who covers a lot of Bosky artwork, and it was it had to be in the late 90s or the early 2000s. And I saw it and I was like, look, I wonder if you'd be interested in covering my work, Black Metropolis, and put it in a gallery. And she looked at me like I was crazy. And I understand that because the world wasn't ready for that. Not in comics, and certainly not in the gallery system. And uh, here we are now where we got Cameron here at the show. So there you go. That's awesome. And the idea for Black Metropolis, where did that start? Where did that where was the where were the germs of that? Like what what were the beginnings of Black Metropolis? Well, uh, again, where I talked with my brother, uh, th that was the first thing when I realized, oh, you know, and I'd done black characters before, but it was never really a like a, a overtly. Uh, it wasn't something I was willingly doing. I was just doing it just to be doing it. Uh, you know, my character Thunderstar when I was, you know, five, six, seven, eight. That character was based on Jim Kelly. So I've always had and done black characters. But when I said, okay, I want to do a black character, make a point, you know, and I want to create material specifically for black people, but that has the ability to universally cover any uh, uh, demographic, that's, that would have to be when, uh, Julie Dash did Daughters of the Dust. I've yeah. said this to her before. I don't know if she 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 takes me seriously, but she was doing this love story where she wanted to base it in this city where all of the buildings were made out of African sculptures. Mm -hmm. And I decided uh, 
that I would, I've tried to do concept design for it. Mm-hmm. And it had such a tremendous effect on me that it would affect Black Metropolis. Then on top of that, around the same period of time, I was reading a lot of material about Yoruba religion uh, with the Orisha, Shango, Ogun, Yemenya, Oshun, and all those different things. And uh, would a few years later become an initiate in their religion. I am the worst Yoruba priest ever, by the way. So <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing at all, and that's okay. But uh, what I did was I fused those elements with the Ralph Macquarie S style, with the black aesthetic style, with the comics, and that is what Black Metropolis is. Now, if you will notice, there is no identifiable story in that, then you would be correct. Right. <laughs> you know, the story was I intended to adapt the tales of the Orisha in that style. And uh, uh, it's, uh, it's been an interesting, interesting run. But now, uh, Black Metropolis in the iteration that I'm working on now that I intend to finish sometime next year, it's my memoirs. Mm. And it's about my life and what I was doing at the time I was creating the pieces of art. So um, take the art of Star Wars, Black Metropolis, you know, and our crime comics, put it together and you got Black Metropolis. Well, you can feel that um, Orisha influence in your work. I was looking at High John Conqueror. Oh, thank you. And, um, you know, you can see like the double bladed axe has that the Shango influence in it. And um, is this and then, and, and, you know, forgive me if this feels like a, a leading question, but is that influence intentional? Like, are, are you trying to um, really and, and this is, I think, as black people we we do things one of two ways we try to either make a transition easy and not make people afraid or we hit you as hard as we possibly can and be like you have to deal with it you know what i mean and um it feels like in your work you're going you have to deal with it you have to deal with this and you have to deal with me right and uh i'm wondering if that's an intentional thing are you doing that on purpose? Uh, I would say that uh, it is both. Hmm. It's both of those things. It's all of those things combined. Uh, I I want the right to do, like I was just, uh, uh, you know, Maddie's Rocket and Infinite, my newest graphic novel, and I'm going to ask you a question that relates to it. Hmm. Uh, I've been working very hard with my manager, Boston, and we, we are pitching Maddie's Rocket and Infinitum to mainstream publishers because okay. now is the time where that can be done. And I have stories and concepts that we put together for these pitches that I've done over the decades, man. Mm. And they run the gamut from YA, stuff for young kids, adults, uh, 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 domestic dramas, all those types of things. So I want the right. You know, you were in Stump. Right? Yes. That's a musical. Yes. That is also dance. Yes. So you're mixing different genres. Absolutely. Different mediums, if you will. I don't know, genre might be the wrong word. But no, you are mixing those things. I'm sorry? I said genre is perfect. Yes. Okay, great. So you're mixing those things together. And, uh, you know, and also having 
been around dancers my entire life. You know, as an athletic, that, that most people don't understand that dancing is art, but it's also athletics. You're like a professional athlete. You're getting beat up, basically. Every 100%, time you perform. 100%, yes. But as a dancer, you still reserve and want the right to tell a story in any medium, whether it be domestic drama, science fiction, Afrofuturism, uh, all those different things. And you know, you want the right to do whatever kind of comic you want to do, right, Cameron? Right. Same thing. I want that right too. Absolutely. So with Hi John, I wanted to do something. This is gonna sound really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um Edgar Rice Burrow created Tarzan. Yes. And he was not the most progressive of people. He was very regressive in his in his in his outlook on life about people of color. Agreed. And but I'm sorry, Tarzan is a crazy character. John Carter, warlord of Mars, Mars is a crazy character. It's Superman was influenced by John Carter, Warlord of Mars. Mm -hmm. And what I wanted to do was to do a story that with a main character that looked like Ahmed. That take no prisoners, you know, built like Conan, mm -hmm. but with a battle axe, just like Shango. Yeah. And I wanted to tell and fuse those different elements together. Now, that's one of the reasons why I really appreciate you guys interviewing me, you and Lonnie, because you guys are scholars. So you're, and, and you're asking me that question because you're detecting and seeing directly a connection between the medium of comics and art, but you're also seeing some, you're directly seeing the influence. Yes. So it's not that you're blind, you're seeing exactly what I'm intended. Yes. But I want, there's so much work to do, man. We'll be old men before we get to the end of it. Yeah. There's so much material to cover. And I'm one guy. So moving forward, probably after the next few weeks, I have to look into start getting an assistant just to help me finish all this work. I have about 30 books on the way. Wow. Wow. That's, yeah. that's quite a, a, a library you're creating. And that's a lot, a lot of work. But I think what's strongest about it is I, I feel like your voice and your point of view is super specific. Like I know when I when I looked at that frame of High John Conqueror um, on your website, I was like, oh, that looks like John Carter, Warlord from Mars. But it looks like Shango. But check it out. Check it out. Yeah. High John Conqueror is a myth of a black man who from who could move from one plantation to the next like a trickster. Right. And I wanted to take that and fuse it with all those different things. I'm from down south, so I wanted to that the, the you know the the kind of war between the Union and the Confederacy, and I wanted to pull those things together and actually have a Union, a black Union soldier, yes, be the main character. Yeah, and that's what the idea was. What do you think is slowing us down when we put these images out there into the world, and they aren't as distributed as much as they, I think, deserve to be? What do, What do you think is the the reason? What I mean, of course, is kind of rhetorical, but I I really would like to hear like why you think that Maddie's Rocket and 
Hijon, Conqueror, and all of your books, it feels like turning the wheel is just becoming very laborious. And even right now, when we have this ability to digital, digitally distribute our work, it feels like there's a lot of noise in the way. When trying to get our ideas out, our, our, it still becomes very difficult. What do you think that is? Uh, I would think your mindset or what you just said absolutely applies to everything four years prior, prior to four years ago. Mm -hmm. It was absolutely correct. You're grinding your wheels, you're losing hair, you know, your family's falling apart because you're trying to put that stuff together and no one wants it. Yeah. You know, people don't want to try to do that. Uh, and for myself, uh, what can I say? I mean, I, Right now, I mean, think about it. Orange is the new black. Their final season is next year. Yeah. They went seven years, man. Yeah. 90% of the cast is female. Half of them are gay. That's, that is like groundbreaking. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the world we lived in, we came up in as younger people, that's gone. Yes. It's like Ahmed Best and Lonnie Avi Brooks created a podcast called the Afrofuturist Podcast where they could interview people. People like, I, I, I hear a chorus of crickets over my life, right? Mm -hmm. But now you guys are able to connect to me. And this is content. This content is just as important as a Netflix documentary, yeah. as an HBO documentary. It's just as relevant because it is now digital and it exists into perpetuity. Yes. Uh, so to answer your question more exactly, that's water under the bridge, man. Water under the bridge, we here now. Uh, uh, only thing I do is do better with my health. I've been walking every day to get myself in shape. You got to stay in shape, Cameron. We got to be very good with our health, right? You know, uh, so we got to do that because there's lots of work to be done. Mm -hmm. Lots of pictures and drawings to do and uh, lots of stories to tell. And uh, I would also say that, you know, we're doing things where I'm moving my projects into the mainstream graphic novel space, but that doesn't even speak to the movie stuff and TV stuff, which is much more dynamic, much more dynamic uh, uh, in, in our experience. I can't talk about any of it now, but oh my God, it's the sky is the limit. The sky is the limit, you know? And that's why I think it's, uh, I mean, my work is in a gallery, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it, where, you know, Carrie Mae Weems, thank you, sir. Did you like it, by the way? Yes. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm going to give you one of these copies in a bit after the show, okay? Can you hang on? Good, good, good. And by the way, I do drawing uh, in my books when I finish. But anyway, to answer your question, I, the sky's the limit. The sky's the limit. You remember, the, uh, did you see American Gods last yes. year? That scene with Orlando Jones? Yeah. He's playing a Nazi. A Nazi. Yeah, a Nazi, right. I want to see an entire episode or season with that character doing that. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's where we are now. Because, you know, people need ideas. I mean, random acts of flyness. Yeah. HBO. You know, it's out. Terrence Nats. You know, uh, 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 Insecure is out. You know what I mean? These things aren't even, you know, Insecure has been around, what, four years now. Mm -hmm. So these people need that content. They need us to do our stuff because 
they only have so many ideas. So it's up to us to produce them. What do you mean when you say you are encapsulated in light? Ah, somebody's really been reading here, reading my material. Thank you, Mr. Bat. <laughs> um, joy. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, I was, you know, I've I've been around for a second here, and I guess I would say being encapsulated means that you are surrounded. And when I say encapsulated by light, what I mean is that. Whatever situation you're in, everything is all manageable, doable, and in order to finish anything, you must attack things that are manageable and doable. And when you're doing that, you're encapsulated in light. And how does that move your work? Um... Oh, man, you're throwing them to me today, brother. i got to give it to you. Whoa, let's see. That moves my work. I raised my kids. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I raised my kids. And it's this going to sound really arrogant. It's Tim time now. It's Tim time. Yeah. It's time for me to do my thing. It's Tim time. That's, that, that is what I mean. When I say being encapsulated in life, means, okay, it's time to go to work. Time to go to work. Right. And when you start that work, what do you see first? Do you see a world first? Do you see a character first? Do you see a storyline first? Do you find inspiration from the everyday world and you go, oh, wait a minute, I can make that a thing. Like, what do you, what do you look at? What do you see? Uh, I'm going to answer that question, but I'm also going to answer his question because he asked something similar as that. Oh, great. So when I'm creating a story, it fluctuates. Sometimes the visuals come first. Sometimes the words come first. Sometimes they alternate back and forth. Sometimes stories are immediate. They happen real quick, right? Sometimes... Stories happen over decades. I know that's not good, but you're young. You got time. But what I'm saying is that sometimes stories come slow. It's like I have this one concept I'm doing called Ricks, R-I-X. And for years, it's just been this, this guy who I created when I was your age. And he was based, he was a detective in a kind of futuristic world. I still don't know what the entire story is to this day. Mm-hmm. And I was working on it this morning as I'm putting together proposals. And it finally hit me two hours ago before I left to come to this podcast interview. It is Rick's is a story that is a police procedural, right? A standard by the numbers police story that is based within a world that has adjusted to ecological disaster. Hmm. So the oceans have already risen. And you know, most of the time when they do stuff like uh, 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 Hunger Games, you've seen Hunger Games, right? Okay, that's a Dale, good dad, you don't wanna watch them. That stuff is bad for young children. Good, smart, smart, good dad, good dad, Dale, well done. But anyway, so what I'm saying is, so uh, uh, I'm gonna the reference I'm gonna use here probably is gonna go you don't want. So Waterworld with Kevin Costner, Kevin right? Costner, yeah. The ocean floods and they, you know, again they based it on Strange Days, I guess, with uh, the Brendan McCarthy work. 
Uh, but the roadway is always seen in a dystopian manner. Yes. Where everything is falling apart. Human beings don't have the capacity to recover. And I said, I want to do a police procedural, meaning a police movie, cop Michelle, that is based within a world where the oceans have risen. Society still has issues, but they just simply kept going. So no land to put the cities on, put them on boats. Put the cities on ships. If you have small islands, those become highly important. Basically, that's, that's I, I'm creating the world now. And by creating the world, I'm going to get the narrative. Does that make sense? As I do my world building, I'm going to get the narrative. Yes. Now, check it out. With Maddie's Rocket, it was a little bit different because I wanted to specifically do something for my dad, who used to play for the Negro Leagues. He used to play for the uh, Memphis Red Sox, right? Wow. Uh, and I wanted to tell a story that featured a character similar to him, and then the story happened pretty quick. Right. So that's what it is. Sometimes the stories come slow, sometimes they come fast, but they come in the time they're supposed to. Does that make sense? Yeah. Good. Is there a we reference? Is there a reference that you usually go back to when you're stuck? Like if you're if you're on a if you're on an idea, like say for Ricks, and you're just stuck. You're like, what is it? What is it? What do you use for inspiration? Like, what do you look at? What do you find? What do you read? Uh, what do you touch? Like, what gives you that, you know, when you get, when you get, a, when you're in that hard area, when you're in the chair and you're just like, I don't know what's next. How do you get over that hump? Okay. This is a very good question. And this will also, he asked something similar to that. So first thing you do is you recognize that I have found that it is important to do more than one project. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. You don't just do one project, you do more than one. You keep control, you don't wanna to do too many, but what you do is you have at least two projects going, at least two. So when you're working on a story and you reach a wall, you move to the other one. And you work on that one. And then when you feel like, okay, I've done enough for this, then you go back to your original project or you take a walk, or you exercise, or in certain cases, like I've done before, you eat a little bit too much, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, but you gotta watch that. So what it is, is when you're creating stories, right? Everything in its appointed time, not a moment sooner. However, you can will a story into existence. Mm -hmm. You can will a story. There have been times when I've created stories and I was like, I'm gonna do this, this gonna happen, and this is what it is. So for example, the story I'm doing now, Infinitum, about a man cursed by a uh, vengeful lover with the gift of immortality, right? That story came about because I wanted to do essentially black Superman. Right. Right? But it was just an idea. But when the New York Times contacted me in uh, 2016 to do a story on Afrofuturism, that was one of the ideas that I pitched. It was an older idea that had come up with in the early 2000s. But I started working on it, and it was 30 pages, you know, 30 images long, and, I, and they couldn't go with it because Black Man as a Mortal God wasn't really in the wheelhouse of New York Times. But here we are now, two years later, 
And the story is about 250 pages long. All the artwork is painted like Macquarie. And uh, it's going to blow your head off, sir. Wow. I can't wait to read that. That's that amazing. Tag, I'm sorry. I had to say, you got to put it out there. You got to put the lay the hammer down, man. Yeah, man. You got to set that bar. Have you collaborated yeah. with other storytellers, artists, Afrofuturists, or do you do most of your work yourself? Oh, my God. He's he's a hey man, stop that. <laughs> he, he, like he's like slang, you know they call it slang when you're pulling it back from the country. That's what he's doing today. Anyway, uh, I ha- I am not the greatest collaborator in the world over the last two years. Hmm. Uh, and as a result of that, um, I'll put it to you this way: I have spent my entire life trying to do my work, but really finishing other people's work. Yeah. This is the nature of being an artist for many artists. I mean, I'm done. Yeah. I, I wish I wish I could say it in a less dramatic way, but I'm done, man. I got to get to my stuff now. Yeah. I, I consider myself as good a writer as any of the best science fiction or fantasy writers out there. But I also consider myself as good as the best visual artists out there. I'm not saying I'm better, but I, I feel like I'm that's good. If I don't get to doing those stories, right? If I don't finish those stories, Cameron, when you start your story, you have to finish. Very important. It took me a long time to understand that. That's what it's about. So collaborations, will come again but only after i've had my uh it's like you ever seen the lion eat and yeah. the other ones are waiting for that lion to finish eating mm-hmm. i'm the lion eating i gotta finish i hadn't finished eating yet so give me a few years check back in a few years right on and also you also talk about you know visualizing and working your butt off and then you have the ask right what would you ask for now at this stage in your career and in your life? This guy, man, what are you doing, man? You can't be there. You just put me in a, a like to act. Man, this, this I mean, is this is more the private venue, man. <laughs> this oh, is the show, brother. This is the show. We got to get, we got to get to the real. We got to get right, to, right, we got to right, get right. inside you. But while I'm talking, I might meander a little bit as I'm trying to answer the question. Any way you want to do it. Any way you want to do it. My ask would be, oh, my God, I'm mad. Dude, Cameron, I want my work to be seen across the planet. I want my work to be seen by people who live in Thailand, in Clarksdale, Mississippi, in, in, in New York City, in Portland, Oregon, in, in Russia. I want people who are wealthy, people who are not wealthy, black, white. I want the entire world to see my work. And the ask is, is whatever venue organization, individual, group of individuals that I can partner with 
who see the value in my work and they let me do my thing, if that makes sense. Meaning that I, I've said this before in my students to my students, it's like a nuclear power plant. You would not want me to put me in charge of a nuclear power plant. We would die of radiation poisoning. There would be fallout. It wouldn't be good. Don't let me do that. I can draw and illustrate and tell good stories. I'm, that's the thing I, I'm good at. And it's not magic, by the way, Cameron. It's not like, oh, I was popped out of my mama's womb. Drawing. No, no. It's, I've been doing this since I was a boy, a young kid. So I'm only as good because I've done it for years. And even when I wasn't doing comics, I was still in animation, game design. I taught for years. And all that stuff now informs my comic book. And I want to prove that I am a master. Not to me, but to the world. Mm -hmm. And I want to get my stuff out. So my ask is like, yes, I want like, for example, I self-published. This was all published. This, well, the irony is this was published by Print On Demand. This was published in my studio. And it is kicking my butt, by the way, because I would say manufacturing books inside your house is a very difficult thing to do. But a mainstream book publisher is what I'm going to do now. Why? I need penetration. Mm -hmm. I need my work to go everywhere. And we're in a period now where Black Panther made $1.4 billion. So somebody knows a person who does quality, fully rendered, well-told stories with characters of color, there's a market for it. And it is the time is now for me to get my work out. And that's, does that answer your question? Yes. I hope it does. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's going to happen. Your work is phenomenal. And it, you, it, and it's you see your influence, you see the strength of your storytelling, and um, it's it, it's highly impactful, very really highly impactful. Um, we have one last question, and and okay. this is kind of one of our standard the Afrofuturist podcasts questions, right? And I would love to hear your take on it. If you had a billboard, if you had control of a billboard anywhere in the world and you could put whatever you want on that billboard be it words be it pictures um be it an idea uh where would that billboard be and what would you want on it uh i would want uh my artwork put up in the middle of times square uh, and, but I would want to use my own character, but I would want it to be influenced by Cameron's drawing here. You see that? Mm -hmm. What does that say? I got this. That's exactly what it said. That's what I want to do. I want, I'm a visual Afrofuturist. Mm -hmm. And that means you have to see it. Things have to be seen. It's like you're a dancer. You want people to know that you got the moves. Right? Mm -hmm. You can do that. You, if you're a football player, you want to know that you can run over somebody. Mm -hmm. If you're a boxer, you can knock somebody out. If you're a comic book artist, that you can tell great stories that people will enjoy. And that's what I want to do. That's, that's, I want 
my stories to be as visible as possible. Right on. Tim, it's been fantastic speaking with you. You you are just an enormous inspiration and a, a fantastic fountain of not only knowledge, but what you can do when you put your mind to things. And um, it, it's been really inspiring. Can you please tell everyone where they can see your work, where they can find you, where they can interact with you and contact you? All right. Uh, you can see my content on www.dieselfunk.com. Uh, if you're going to buy some stuff, we got to work that out, but it would be dieselfunkstore.com. On Twitter, it would be dieselfunkstu. On Facebook, you can see me constantly saying and talking crazy stuff. Well, not crazy stuff, but I, I talk a little bit on Facebook. Uh, under Tim Fielder, or you can go to the Diesel Funk Facebook page. Uh, and you can also watch my TED Talk, uh, which apparently people find entertaining. I was nervous, but most people say, you didn't look nervous, but I was nervous. Uh, and uh, you can come to the Hammonds House in Atlanta, Georgia, to look at my Black Metropolis show, which will be going till November 25th. Uh, and very soon, can't reveal anything, but we will have some big news, I think, within the coming weeks about Maddie's Rocket and Infinite. Right on. And really quickly, tell everybody the Black Metropolis show. It's the it's your one-man show. Is that correct? Yes, it is. It is. Now, this is going to sound kind of crazy here, but let me pull this out here. It is called Black Metropolis 30 Years. I'm sorry. I forget my own title here, man, because it's so long. But, <laughs> but it is Black Metropolis and it is at the world-famous Hammond's House Museum. I'm going to try to pull out my pamphlet here. There it is. It is Black Metropolis, 30 years of Afrofuturism, comics, music, music, animation, decapitated chickens, heroes, villains, and Negroes. Uh, curated by Boston, my, uh, my manager, and uh, uh, Leatrice Elsie brought me here to the Hammond's House Museum, and we'll be going to November 25th. Right Bam. on. So if anybody is in the area of the Hammond uh, Museum, please check out Tim Fielder and Black Metropolis. Please go to Diesel Funk and look at and experience his stuff as well as check out the TED Talk. It's really great and inspiring. There's some great images and he's wearing a cool bow tie. Tim, Thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm in. I'm in on the bow tie. <laughs> Tim, it's been a real pleasure, man. Thank you thank very, you, very much for you, joining us. And thank you, Cameron, for being here. You're the future. You're the future. We're depending on you. We're depending on you, Cameron. All right, guys. Thank you very much. Have a great thank day. You. Thank you for listening to the Afrofuturist podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be a sponsor of the show, Please contact me at AhmedBest at TheAfroFuturistPodcast.com or at AhmedBest on Twitter. If you have any ideas of any great guests that we would like to talk to on the Afrofuturist Podcast, please contact me again at AhmedBest at TheAfroFuturistPodcast.com or contact me on Twitter at AhmedBest. Thank you all for listening again and I'll see you next time.